happening. I'm sorry, we are doing things a little bit different this morning, so sorry if that threw you a curveball. But I wanted to save a little bit of our worship time till after um, the preaching time, because uh, a lot of this message uh, revolves around people coming into the presence of God and that changing their perspective. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you don't mind um, turning to Psalm 73, that's right about in the middle of your Bible, it was written by a fellow named Asaph. Now Asaph writes uh, several psalms. He was from about the time of David, who wrote a bunch of other psalms. But Asaph was a choir director or part of the the priestly services. And when he writes this psalm, he is honest. Of course, we'd expect that from a, a Bible author, but it gives us a unique perspective into his heart. So we're going to talk about Psalm 73 and um, the thoughts and feelings of Asaph, and then we're going to move from there into the story of Job and talk about Job a little bit. But for now, if you have turned in your Bible uh, to Psalm 73, I'll remind you to uh, also think back, if you've been with us, to the past several weeks. We've been going through this story of, or this series about the awe of God, or being in awe of God, and that God is wonderful and awesome and worthy of awe. And we talked about creation, how through the word of his mouth, he created everything, light. He separated light from darkness, made day and night. He made uh, the earth. He made uh, everything that's on the earth, the fish, the birds, the uh, bushes, the trees, all life. And, and tr- what, a, what a wonderful, awesome thing it is to be able to create all of those things, and he did it just through the word of his mouth. And then the next week, we studied how he created man. He took man from the dust of the earth. He took the dust of the earth, and he formed it, and he breathed life into the man. And because of that, we were given purpose. We were given purpose by God to go, to rule over the earth, to be good rulers over the earth, to name the animals, to be fruitful and multiply. But mankind sinned. And because of that, God took his wonderful creation and he subjected it to futility, causing there to be pain and struggle and strife so that we would be forced to turn to him, the, awful, the awesome creator. So, um, if you have turned to Psalm 73, uh, we'll be reading the entire psalm. says, truly God has been good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is like their necklace. 
Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain, I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But... When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, When I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. Pray with me. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for the willingness of this psalmist to be honest with us, uh, to not just write a happy song and let it be, but to tell us, what was going in, uh, going on in his heart uh, when he was struggling. Uh, pray that you would use this passage to speak to us, uh, that you would encourage some of us uh, when we need to be encouraged, and that you would convict some of us if we need to be convicted. We lift up your name in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the writer of Psalms starts things off by saying, He admits, he says, truly God has been good to Israel. I cannot deny it. The facts are there. To those who are pure in heart. But I almost slipped. I was envious of the wicked. And then he explains why he would be envious. I mean, he looks at them and they have everything. They're rich. Things go well for them say, okay, well, money isn't everything. They're healthy. They live at ease their entire lives. Uh, Depending on how you translate, um, they have no pains until death. Uh, Some say they have no pains up until their death, and, and some might say that even their death is nice and peaceful. So, like, you don't even get that, where it's like, well, they're a terrible person, but then they died in a terrible way. No, they... They, they have a nice, long, happy, peaceful, wealthy life, even though 
They make it clear that they don't care about God. They make it clear that they have no intention of living a righteous life. They make it clear that they will gain finances or money or wealth or popularity or fame in any way that they feel is a good way. And that way is not the way that God feels is a good way. And the psalmist is thinking, why does God allow this? I almost envy the wicked person because they have everything. And he says about himself in verse 14, For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. So the psalmist does not have a wonderful, prosperous, peaceful, healthy life. Whereas he looks and others do. And so he's thinking to himself. He doesn't say it out loud because in verse 15 he said, If I had said, I would speak thus. Because he was, remember, a psalmist. He was someone of renown. He was someone that knew God and people knew that he knew God. So if he said, I will speak thus, he would have misled people. So he takes all of this that he's struggling with and he holds it in. He doesn't stand up in front and question God's justice. He doesn't stand up and say, look, this isn't fair. He just says, I'm struggling with this in my heart. And then, at verse 16 the whole passage has a drastic shift. So let's look, what, what changes the passage and what changes the perspective of Asaph? But when I thought how to understood this, uh, understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. So as he tries to wrap his mind around it, he understands his inability to do so. So, in verse 17, until, until I went into the presence or the sanctuary of God, then I discern their end. So the timing there is important. He's trying to wrap his mind around eternal justice. He's trying to wrap his mind about what's fair in the world, who gets wealth and who doesn't, who's sick and who's not sick, who's struggling and who's not struggling. Much like the writer of Ecclesiastes, he he can't figure out why God allows some people who have nothing to do with God prosper and some people who worship God faithfully are allowed to struggle through life. So he can't figure it out until he comes into the presence of God and that changes his perspective. So how does it, how does it change his perspective? In verse 18 it says, Truly you set them in slippery places, You make them fall to ruin. That word for fall is a a finality of fall. It's to fall and stay fallen. Um, Jonathan Edwards, very famous uh, preacher uh, in early America, had a sermon that was is regarded as maybe one of the best sermons in English of all time. It's called "Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God," and he quotes this passage. And he references people who are far from God as like people who are walking on ice with heavy burdens. And when you walk on ice, if you're very careful, you can stay up for a long time. But all it takes is one misstep, 
one strong breeze, one slight change, and you start to fall. And when you're on ice, you cannot recover, and then you're falling. So he's using this illustration as someone who's on a a slippery slope. Or not a slope, but a slippery flat place. So a slippery flat place with a heavy burden on their their back, the, the weight of their own sin, and all it takes is a moment. Can't snap very loud. All it takes is a moment. And then they're fallen. And that's final. Then they enter into the presence of God. And God says, all right, welcome to eternity. I'm going to ask you some questions. And you're going to answer me. So the whole passage of Psalm 73 reminds me of a different biblical character. It reminds me of Job. So um, I'm going to paraphrase the book really quickly. It's a, it's a long book, over 40 chapters. But it starts with a man. Well, it actually starts with God. And he's in the, the, the throne room of heaven, and all of his angels and princes are there. And then... Uh, Satan walks in, and, and Satan means the accuser. So Satan walks in, and he uh, and uh, he says, and they're like, well, where have you come from? He's like, well, I've been going throughout the entire earth and um, looking, and there's a lot of evil down there, rubbing it in a little bit to God. And God says, well, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him. He's righteous. He's upright. He's morally good. And Satan says, well, is it for no reason that Job loves you? You give him everything, everything that he could ever desire, you give to Job. So Satan accuses God of buying Job's affection. So God says, no, I know Job. It's not his physical possessions, it's not his family It's not for those reasons that he loves me. He loves me. So I will allow you, Satan, to take away his physical possessions, but do not affect his person. Satan says, good. So he runs down, destroys everything Job owns. This includes he loses his uh, herds of camels and sheep worth quite a bit of money. But probably the the worst part of this section is a strong wind hits a house that his sons and daughters are feasting in, and none of them survive. So Job tears his clothes and goes to God, and he writes that song that we just sung, Blessed be the name of the Lord. In good times and in bad times, blessed be the name of the Lord. So, Satan doesn't get what he was after. So, eventually it says, again, when the princes were meeting in the presence of God, Satan shows up again. He accuses Job of not really loving God again. And and God says, well, he still loves me. And Satan says, but you didn't let me affect his health. If I would have affected his, if you would have allowed me that, he would curse you to your face. So God says, I will allow you to affect his health. So Job 
starts getting sick. He gets these boils and blisters. On top of losing everything, including his family, he's sitting there in the ashes of his burned-out estate, and he's scraping the boils with broken pottery, and he's in severe pain. And his close friends come, and they try to comfort Job, and so they just all tear their clothes, and they sit in the ashes for seven days and don't say a word. They just sit there. And Job, unlike the writer of Psalm 73, opens his mouth. And he, and he begins with a poem, but the, the, the purpose or the, the message of that poem is he says, I curse the day that I was born. It would have been, been better for me to have never lived because my life is such a misery to me. And his friends say, oh, Job, time out. Time out, Job. Let's talk through this. Let us reason together. So Job says, okay, let's reason. You know me. You know how I've never uh, turned away the poor from my gate. You know how I have made a covenant with my eyes to never lust after a woman. You know how I never forsake the widowed or the orphan. And every time that uh, one of my servants comes to me with a complaint, I hear them. What have I done? And so they start laying out um, possible things. Well, they say, well, we know God is just. So maybe there's some massive secret sin that you've been hiding from us, Job. And Job says, why? I didn't. And we know that he didn't because God himself says that Job is righteous. And that's the key. So Terrible things have happened to Job. And his friends try to explain, well, there must be something. And, that goes, and there are three cycles of this. Three friends speak up, Job speaks, and his three friends try to respond. Then Job, not satisfied with their answer, asks another question, produces more evidence. And the three friends try to wrap their minds around it, try to explain what God is up to. And they go through that three times until Job finally says at the end, you have not given me a sufficient answer. I want to be judged by God, but I cannot find God. So he, he, he basically says out loud, God, I want to stand in the judgment, which is a terrifying thought. But he wants to know the answer. And then a little fella named Elihu speaks up. We didn't even know he was there. If you've read the passage up until this point, he says, I I held in my answer because I was the youngest of all of you, and 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 I let old age and wisdom have their time. But you've all spoken, and I have not yet heard someone answer Job wisely. No one has answered his question. So he rebukes the friends, and then he turns to Job. And he says, Job, you, like I, have been pinched off from a piece of clay. Why are you questioning the Creator? And then he goes on to explain how God is far above us, and how God is awesome and wonderful 
and his power is mighty and how we need to be careful when we just start hurling questions into the presence of God. And then Job doesn't say anything, but the Lord speaks. In chapter 38, the Lord speaks out of a whirlwind, a storm or a tornado or something. And he says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who's speaking without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. So, Job, get ready. I'm going to ask you some difficult questions. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstones? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. So God says, Job, where were you when I created everything? Where did I put the, the cornerstone of the earth? Where were you when I measured out a span and said, the earth will be this big, and the waves will crash up to this point and no further? He not only built it, but he sustains it, and he keeps it in order. So Job just lays there or or sits there for two chapters, and then God says, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. So Job says, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? So he says, Job, are you willing to put me in the wrong so that you can believe yourself to be in the right? See, both in Job and in Psalm 73, As these men came into the presence of God, they had a a stark change in perspective. As they encountered God, it changed everything. God gave Job back everything. Doubled. And he gave him back uh, seven 
children, the number that he had, but the Bible writer even takes the time to write out and explain that the daughters that he was given were the most beautiful on the earth. So it's, it's not a divine punishment for a, a wrongdoing that Job suffered these things. It was just part of his life. And when Job, anth- or when, when Job asks the question, why? God does not answer the question directly, but says, what perspective do you have on my decisions that you would say that your way is right and mine is wrong? What, what perspective do you have, Job? Were you here at the beginning? Were you sitting in my presence when Satan came up and accused me and accused you? No. And then God restores everything. This also reminds me of a story I heard a while back. It was about a man named Horatio Spafford, or Spafford. Uh, he was a lawyer in uh, the late 19th century, late 1800s. Uh, he had done very well for himself. God had blessed him. He had uh, five children, uh, four young daughters, and a young son. But in 1871, his youngest son, his son, died from pneumonia. And later that year, uh, most of what he owned was burned up in the Great Chicago Fire. So two years later, uh, his family was traveling to England or, or to Europe, and the ship that his four daughters on, he, he sent his four daughters and his wife ahead of him, and he stayed behind, and he was going to catch up uh, a few days later. But the ship that they were car- uh, was taking them across the sea collided with another ship, and the ship that his family was on sunk in 12 minutes, and his four daughters passed away. And so his wife sends him a telegram back and says, that says, saved alone, what shall I do? So he, he quickly buys a ticket and comes across the Atlantic Ocean. And the captain calls down to him as they're going past the section of ocean near where his uh, family's boat sank. So he stands on the deck and he writes these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, or when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, O oh my sin, O oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. For me, 
be it Christ, be it Christ hence to live. If Jordan above me shall roll, no pangs shall be mine, for in death as in life thou wilt whisper peace to my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend a song in the night of my soul. The same thing that happened to the writer of Psalm 73, the same thing that happened to Job, and the same thing with Mr. Spafford. They all came into the presence of God in what would be a terrible situation. It's not a self-help book. It's not uh, just trying to put a happy face on things. These were terrible events that happened to them. And yet, they come into the presence of the Lord. Their perspective changes, and they worship the Lord. We've been studying how God is awesome. How what he does invokes a sense of awe. Awe, uh, if you look it up in a dictionary, usually has something to do, the, the idea that you're standing on the precipice of immensity. Like if this stage, if, if somehow space was right at the edge of this stage, Stage in all of its immensity, and I could somehow stand right here, I would be in awe if I could just see out into it. And, and we're, we're taught to do the same thing when it comes to God, that we just come right to the edge. The immensity of God and all of his power, his creative power, and all of his justice, his eternal justice, and in all of his love, his unfailing love, and we come right up against it, and that reminds us who he is and what he's done. The writer of Hebrews wants us to remind us of the same thing in Hebrews 12, verse 18. He wanted the readers of Hebrews to remember that there was a time when after they had left the land of Egypt, all the Israelites came into the mountain and they came up to the base of a mountain, Mount Sinai, and the cloud or the, or the fire that God had been going in front of them rested on the top of the mountain. And God spoke and said, no one touch the mountain. This is a holy place. No person, no beast, nothing should touch the mountain because this is set apart. And he wanted them to understand how magnificent and how terrifying being in the presence or being close to the presence is. It's not a casual thing. Holiness is, is the opposite of a casual thing. So when we're invited to come into his presence, or as we come into his presence like Job, he answers out of a, out of a whirlwind. And he wants Job to have the right perspective. God is not someone who has to answer the questions that we 
throw at him, but rather we are the ones who have to take seriously the questions that he proposes to us. In verse 18 of Hebrews 12, he says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. Verse 19 says, And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, you have not come as to a physical mountain where God says, I am on that mountain and you cannot touch it. But we've come to a different mountain through the blood of Christ. We've come to Mount Zion. But you have come, in verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable, the innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So the writer of Hebrews is said, do not invest in what can be shaken. Because one day he will speak and everything that can be shaken will be shaken. Everything that can be destroyed will be destroyed. And the only thing that will be left is what cannot be shaken. And through Jesus Christ coming down and living in a world that could be shaken and making himself someone who could feel and encounter the pain and the struggles that we go through living on this earth, he was God. He didn't have to. He didn't have to put on flesh. He didn't have to enter this struggle in which we live. But because he loved us so much. He took on flesh. He lived in a world where he experienced tremendous pain. And if we thought Job was righteous, how much more was Jesus? Not having sinned once, and then he endures the cross. The awesome creator, God, puts on flesh and then is nailed to a cross so that we 
could come to Mount Zion, a heavenly Jerusalem, a place that could not be shaken and will not be shaken. That's the perspective change right there. No matter what happens in this life. Like Mr. Spafford said, my sin, oh the thought. Oh this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. So now I wanted us to come into a time of worship. Come into a time where we can sing out to God that our perspectives might be changed. That we would come into his presence with thanksgiving that our perspectives might be shifted away from us here on this earth and the struggles that we might be going through and cast our vision into heaven to a future that we have that cannot be shaken. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite the band on stage and worship with me. If if you say, well, I I don't know if my sin has been nailed to the cross. I don't know if I've entered into a relationship with Christ. Then come meet me down and we can talk about it. Or if you just want to come and, and bow and just enter into his presence in that way, feel free. But for the rest of us, we'll just sing his praises. Dear Lord, thank you so much for all that you've done for us. Thank you for giving your life for us, for entering in this world full of its pain and its suffering and experiencing all of that to make a way for us, to make a way for us to have real relationship to you. We praise you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.